Welcome to the new year and to fast asleep. You're probably here because you just want a good night's sleep. You have come to the right place. Um, but if you're just wanting someone to read you a story from a classic author, some wonderful short story masterpiece, yeah, you've come to the right place. All right, well, one of the first American authors to become an international celebrity, Jack London earned an immense fortune from his writing. He was born in San Francisco as John Griffith Cheney. Mm -hmm. His uh, Call of the Wild comes to my mind first. He often wrote about the Klondike Gold Rush, but you know, he loved the South Pacific and wrote about it as well. So, for the next two episodes, we don't bring you anything from the South Pacific. It's winter now, for us anyway. And we bring you a bracing, wintry story. I mean, you're going to need lots of blankets as you listen to this one. So tuck deeply in and please enjoy to build a fire. Day had dawned cold and gray when the man turned aside from the main Yukon Trail. He climbed the high earth bank where a little traveled trail led east through the pine forest. It was a high bank and, well, he paused to breathe at the top. He excused the act to himself by looking at his watch. Hmm, it was nine o'clock in the morning. There was no sun or promise of sun, although there was not a cloud in the sky. It was a clear day. However, there seemed to be an indescribable darkness over the face of things. That was because the sun was absent from the sky. And this fact did not worry the man. He was not alarmed by the lack of sun. It had been days since he had seen the sun. The man looked along the way he had come. The Yukon lay a mile wide and hidden under three feet of ice. On top of this ice were as many feet of snow. It was all pure white, north and south as far as the eye could see, it was unbroken white. The one thing that relieved the whiteness was a thin dark line that curved from the pine-covered island to the south. It curved into the north, where it disappeared behind another pine-covered island. This dark line was the trail the main trail. It led south 500 miles to the Chilkoot Pass and Saltwater. It led north 75 miles to Dawson. 
and still farther on to the north, a thousand miles to Nulato, and finally to St. Michael on Bering Sea, a thousand miles and half a thousand more. But all this, the distant trail, no sun in the sky, the great cold, and the strangeness of it all, had no effect on the man. It was not because he was long familiar with it. He was a newcomer in the land, and this was his first winter. The trouble with him was that he was not able to imagine. He was quick and ready in the things of life, but only in the things and not in their meanings. 50 degrees below zero meant 80 degrees of frost. Such facts told him that it was cold and uncomfortable. And that was all. It did not lead him to consider his weaknesses as a creature affected by temperature. Nor did he think about man's general weakness, able to live only within narrow limits of heat and cold. From there, it did not lead him to thoughts of heaven and the meaning of a man's life. 50 degrees below zero meant a bite of frost that hurt, and that must be guarded against by the use of mittens, ear coverings, warm moccasins, and thick socks. 50 degrees below zero was to him nothing more than 50 degrees below zero. That it should be more important than that was a thought that never entered his head. As he turned to go, he forced some water from his mouth as an experiment. Well, there was a sudden noise that surprised him. He tried it again and again in the air before they could fall to the snow, the drops of water became ice that broke with a noise. Well, he knew that at 50 below zero, water from the mouth made a noise when it hit the snow. But this had done that in the air. Well, undoubtedly, it was colder than 50 below. But exactly how much colder? Well, he did not know. But the temperature did not matter. He headed for the old camp on Henderson Creek, where the boys were all ready. They had come across the mountain from the Indian Creek country. He had taken the long trail to look at the possibility of floating logs from the islands in the Yukon down the river when the ice melted. He would be in camp by six o'clock that evening. It would be a little after dark, but the boys would be there, a fire would be burning, and a hot supper would be ready. Mm. As he thought of lunch, he pressed his hand against the package 
under his jacket. It was also under his shirt, wrapped in a handkerchief and lying for warmth against the naked skin. Otherwise, the bread would freeze. He smiled contentedly to himself as he thought of those pieces of bread, each of which enclosed a generous portion of cooked meat. He plunged among the big pine trees. The trail was not well marked here. Several inches of snow had fallen since the last sled had passed. He was glad he was without a sled. Actually, he carried nothing but the lunch wrapped in the handkerchief. He was surprised, however, at the cold. It certainly was cold, he decided, as he rubbed his nose and face with his mittened hand. He had a good growth of hair on his face, but, well, that did not protect his nose or the upper part of his face from the frosty air. Following at the man's heels was a big native dog. It was a wolf dog, gray-coated and not noticeably different from its brother, the wild wolf. The animal was worried by the great cold. It knew that this was no time for traveling. Its own feeling was closer to the truth than the man's judgment. In reality, it was not merely colder than 50 below zero. It was colder than 60 below, than 70 below. It was 75 degrees below zero. Because the freezing point is 32 above zero, it meant that there were 107 degrees of frost. The dog did not know anything about temperatures. Possibly in its brain, there was no understanding of a condition of very cold such as was in the man's brain. But the animal sensed the danger. Its fear made it question eagerly every movement of the man, as if expecting him to go into camp or to seek shelter somewhere and build a fire. The dog had learned about fire, and it wanted fire. Well, otherwise, it would dig itself into the snow and find shelter from the cold air. The frozen moistness of its breathing had settled on its fur in a fine powder of frost. The hair on the man's face was similarly frosted, but more solidly. It took the form of ice and increased with every warm, moist breath from his mouth. Well, also, the man had tobacco in his mouth. The ice held his lips so tightly together that he could not empty the juice from his mouth. The result was a long piece of yellow ice hanging from his lips. If he fell down, it would break, like glass, into many pieces. He expected the ice formed by the tobacco juice 
having been out twice before when it was very cold. But it had not been as cold as this, he knew. He continued through the level forest for several miles. Then he went down a bank to the frozen path of a small stream. This was Henderson Creek, and he knew he was 10 miles from where the stream divided. He looked at his watch. It was 10 o'clock. He was traveling at the rate of four miles an hour. Thus, he figured that he would arrive where the stream divided at half past 12. He decided he would eat his lunch when he arrived there. The dog followed again at his heels with its tail hanging low as the man started to walk along the frozen stream. The old sled trail could be seen, but a dozen inches of snow covered the marks of the last sleds. In a month, no man had traveled up or down that silent creek. The man went steadily ahead. He was not much of a thinker, and at that moment, well, he had nothing to think about, except that he would eat lunch at the stream's divide and that at six o'clock he would be in camp with the boys. There was nobody to talk to, and, well, had there been, speech would not have been possible because of the ice around his mouth. Once in a while, he, the thought repeated itself that it was very cold and that he had never experienced such cold. As he walked along, he rubbed his face and nose with the back of his mittened hand. He did this without thinking, frequently changing hands, but with all his rubbing, the instant he stopped, his face and nose became numb. His face would surely be frozen. He knew that, and he was sorry that he had not worn the sort of nose guard Bud wore when it was cold. Such a guard passed across the nose and covered the entire face. But it did not matter much, he decided. What was a little frost? A bit painful? That was all. It was never serious. Empty as the man's mind was of thoughts, he was most observant. He noticed the changes in the creek, the curves and the bends, and always he noted where he placed his feet. Once, coming around a bend, he moved suddenly to the side like a frightened horse. He curved away from the place where he had been walking and retraced his steps several feet along the trail. He knew the creek was frozen to the bottom. No creek could, could contain water in that winter. But he knew also that there were streams of water that came out from the hillsides and ran along under the snow and on top of the ice of the creek. He knew that even in the coldest weather, these streams 
were never frozen, and he also knew their danger. They hid pools of water under the snow that might be three inches deep or three feet. Sometimes a skin of ice half an inch thick covered them and in turn was covered by the snow. Sometimes there was both water and thin ice and when a man broke through he could get very wet. That was why he had jumped away so suddenly. He had felt the ice move under his feet. He had also heard the noise of the snow-covered ice skin breaking. And, well, to get his feet wet in such a temperature meant trouble and danger. At the very least, it meant delay because he would be forced to stop and build a fire. Only under its protection could he bare his feet while he dried his socks and moccasins. He stood and studied the creek bottom and its banks. He decided that the flowing stream of water came from the right side. He thought a while, rubbing his nose and face. Then he walked to the left. He stepped carefully and tested the ice at each step. Once away from the danger, he continued at his four-mile pace. During the next two hours, he came to several similar dangers. Usually the snow above the pools had a sunken appearance. However, once again, he came near to falling through the ice. Once sensing danger, he made the dog go ahead. Well, the dog did not want to go. It hesitated until the man pushed it forward, and then it went quickly across the water, the white, unbroken surface, and suddenly it fell through the ice, but climbed out on the other side, which was firm. It had wet its feet and legs. Almost immediately, the water on them turned to ice. The dog made quick efforts to get the ice off its legs, and then it lay down in the snow and began to bite out the ice that had formed between the toes. The animal knew enough to do this. To permit the ice to remain would mean sore feet. Now, it did not know this. It merely obeyed the commands that arose from the deepest part of its being. But the man knew these things, having learned them from experience. He removed the mitten from his right hand and helped the dog tear out the pieces of ice. He did not bare his fingers more than a minute and was surprised to find that they were numb. Ooh, it certainly was cold. He pulled on the mitten quickly and beat the hand across his breast. At 12 o'clock, the day was at its brightest, yet the sun did not appear in the sky. At half past 12 on the minute, he arrived at the divide of the creek. He was 
pleased at his rate of speed. If he continued, he would certainly be with the boys by six o'clock that evening. He unbuttoned his jacket and shirt and pulled forth his lunch. The action took no more than a quarter of a minute. Yet, in that brief moment, the numbness touched his bare fingers. He did not put the mitten on, but instead struck the fingers against his leg. Then he sat down on a snow-covered log to eat. The pain that followed the striking of his fingers against his leg ceased so quickly that, well, he was frightened. He had not had time to take a bite of his lunch. He struck the fingers repeatedly and returned them to the mitten. Then he bared the other hand for the purpose of eating. He tried to take a mouthful, but the ice around his mouth prevented him. Then he knew what was wrong. He had forgotten to build a fire and warm himself. He laughed at his own foolishness. As he laughed, he noted the numbness in his bare fingers. Also, he noted that the feeling which had first come to his toes when he sat down was already passing away. He wondered whether the toes were warm or whether they were numb. He moved them inside the moccasins and decided they were numb. He pulled the mitten on hurriedly and stood up. He was somewhat frightened. He stamped forcefully until the feeling returned to his feet. <sighs> it certainly was cold, was his thought. That man from Sulphur Creek had spoken the truth when telling how cold it sometimes got in this country. And he had laughed at him at the time. That showed one must not be too sure of things. There was no mistake about it. It was cold. He walked a few feet, stamping his feet and waving his arms until reassured by the returning warmth. And then he took some matches and proceeded to make a fire. In the bushes, the high water had left a supply of sticks. From here, he got wood for his fire. Working carefully from a small beginning, he soon had a roaring fire. Bending over the fire, he first melted the ice from his face. With the protection of the fire's warmth, he ate his lunch. For the moment, the cold had been forced away. The dog took comfort in the fire, lying at full length, close enough for warmth and far enough away to escape being burned. When the man had finished eating, he filled his pipe with tobacco and had a comfortable time with a smoke. Then he pulled on his mittens, settled his cap firmly about his ears, and started along the creek trail toward the left.
the dog was sorry to leave, and it looked toward the fire. This man did not know cold. Possibly none of his ancestors had known cold, real cold. But the dog knew, and all of its family knew. And it knew that it was not good to walk outside in such fearful cold. It was the time to lie in a hole in the snow and to wait for this awful cold to stop. There was no real bond between the dog and the man. The one was the slave of the other. The dog made no effort to indicate its fears to the man. It was not concerned about the well-being of the man. It was for its own sake that it looked toward the fire. But the man whistled and spoke to it with the sound of the whip in his voice. So the dog started walking close to the man's heels and followed him along the trail. The man put more tobacco in his mouth and started a new growth of yellow ice on his face. Again, his moist breath quickly powdered the hair on his face with white. He looked around him. There did not seem to be so many pools of water under the snow on the left side of Henderson Creek. And for half an hour, the man saw no signs of any. And then it happened. What happened? Ah, that'll be in our next episode. Good night.